Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome back Paula Seligson and Lisa Lee, two senior reporters in our global private credit team. Paula's based in New York. Great to see you. Glad to be here. And Lisa covers credit markets from London. How are you, Lisa? Fine, thank you. Happy to be joining you both. Also on today's show, we'll be talking to Rena Kwok, who covers Asian banks for Bloomberg Intelligence in Singapore. There's a lot going on in that region, so do stay with us. But first, great to have you on the Credit Edge, Lisa Lee and Paula Seligson. Let's talk about private debt. It's been a huge year. We're in a golden age for private credit, or so they say. Why all the hype, though? Do you think it's justified, Paula? Oh, man, that's a tough question. It's definitely grown a lot. So the size of the private credit market is now about $1.6 trillion, and Prequin projects it will reach $2.8 trillion by the year 2028. So you can see the growth is continuing a lot. But a lot of private credit, we focus on direct lending, which is the corporate borrowing side of this. And that's been fairly quiet, mostly because there hasn't been as much leveraged buyout, M&A activity. So I think in a lot of ways, the outlook depends on if private equity sponsors can start agreeing on valuations between buyers and sellers. And if that happens, we could see a significant increase in deals next year. Lisa, did you buy the hype? I think there is some legitimacy to it. As Paula said, deal activity hasn't been great. But when you look at the LP side and investors and where people want to allocate their money, there's a a huge growing interest in what private credit is. It's starting to offer in some ways yields that are superior to private equity, offering a lot more, a lot less risk. And so if LPs and the flow of capital is going to private credit, then I think that's what's causing sort of the the excitement and the and the um, heatedness. So what about next year? What do we expect? More of the same, even bigger deals, more participants, more deals being taken away from public markets and done privately. What's what's your outlook for 2024, Paula? I think bigger deals. I mean, that's what people keep saying. We've now seen a roughly $5 billion deal this year, and it could just keep growing and eating into the um, high-yield bond and leverage loan markets. There's also a lot of high-yield bonds and leverage loans that are maturing soon. And it's challenging for these borrowers to refinance in those markets. And so they might be coming to private credit for some solutions, such as um, payment in kind or pick interest, where you can basically pay interest with more debt instead of cash, which is very helpful if you're struggling with liquidity. Lisa, do you expect a continuation of this trend? Oh, yes. When you look at Cotivity and Adaventa, which has been two of the Cotivity still in play right now, it hasn't happened, but direct lenders and are looking at maybe five point five to six billion dollars of financing at Avinta was the largest deal at 4.5 billion euros. You look at them and they were more interest from private credit than the, there was the size of these loan packages. 
so they could definitely get bigger. I think what might happen next year, especially in the U.S. and less so in Europe, is the banks are starting to come back and they are starting to start to compete for these. So that's going to put more pressure for also on size and also on pricing and also on stru on structure and also on covenants. You're starting to see, especially with these bigger deals, what, what the private credit deals starting to bleed and look more like broadly syndicated deals. So this is just basically old school lending with a new label, is it? I mean, what's the difference between this and what we used to see, I don't know, 20 years ago in the, in the loan market? Is it any different? Yes, I mean, that's, I think you have a I think you have a really good point. It is back to sort of the back to the future in some sense. The biggest difference between what used to happen 20, 30 years ago is one, the size and also the financing. So private credit looks a lot like what maybe the leveraged loan market used to do or the high yield bond market. But when you look at what's where the pool of capital is, now they're being backed by third party capital or BDCs or CLOs. So longer term capital that doesn't quite have the, the asset liability mismatch that banks did or, or financial firms like G Capital or CIT. What do you think, Paula? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it. I've had a lot of people say that private credit is like leverage loans in maybe the 1980s. And that market obviously saw a huge development over time where it was originally bilateral loans. It turned into loans where a group of banks would do it. And then eventually banks syndicated that debt out to institutional asset managers. And that's how the market currently works. And so now we've also been seeing banks trying to get into private credit because their high yield bond and leverage loan businesses are losing ground. And as they get into private credit, it seems like they're almost trying to create hybrid models, so to speak, where they kind of combine, you know, syndication, but also still using some of their own money on their balance sheet while also still partnering with outside capital. So it's a very interesting graying of the lines between high yield bonds, leverage loans, and direct lending. So all this competition, we've had, you know, direct lenders traditionally, uh, like the original direct lenders take, you know, real charge of this market and, and it grew very quickly. Now the banks are coming back in and now it's become extremely popular with everybody, everyone wants in. Is that not a recipe for disaster that, you know, there's all this demand, all this competition for deals, there aren't enough deals. Um, are, are things going bad? Are, are, are things being badly priced? Lisa? I think it's hard to say exactly because it is not very terribly transparent. But picks definitely pick debt, the idea that you can pay interest with more debt rather than with cash. That's a sign of a bubble. But beyond that, it's really hard to see clear, clear signs of bubbles. Um, as of yet, because of the high interest rate environment, leverage hasn't gone as high as, let's say, what we used to see in the broadly syndicated market in 2018 or 2019, definitely less so than what we saw before the financial crisis. So you might be seeing the start of a bubble. I'm not sure we're full on bubble yet, but with all the capital coming in and with the banks coming back and competition heating up, it's definitely a place to watch for maybe an emergent bubble period. One thing we're definitely trying to look for is any data that shows just what is happening with all these existing loans. It's very hard because most of the data is only the BDC portion of the market, which is probably the higher quality portion. And it's only a part of the segment. But there was an interesting data point from Lincoln International recently, which tracks covenant defaults. And so this occurs when, you know, any kind of covenant is tripped. And um, those have actually been trending lower in the past few quarters. So that's good for the market. 
But that's because borrowers and lenders have been proactively amending loans before a default can even occur, which can include, you know, extending maturities or adding equity into the business. So that does show that there's a lot going on. People are having to, you know, get together in a room, negotiate, figure out some solutions for companies, but it just doesn't quite show up in the data. So it's very hard to track and know. And also, I was going to say that the, the, even the private credit market really is sort of bifurcated. You have these deals that are competing against the broadly syndicated leverage loan and high yield bond market, but there's also a portion of the market that's very much small and medium-sized businesses that are really under the radar. And it's hard to know, in one sense, you have tighter covenants on those companies, but on the other, they're a little bit more weak sensitive to economic downturn, and especially if we go into a recession next year, which is still like touch and go, we could have some economic softness. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to those loans. One thing that um, has struck me on the loans um, and and what's really pushing the demand is the very high yields, upwards of 15% on some of these deals. That's obviously great if you're an investor, but how good is it for the borrowers? How can they afford to, to pay that and stay alive? That is very challenging, and it's a fair question. Um, There's a point at which the interest rates just become too high, and I think you know, the entire market is now trying to assess whether certain companies basically have balance sheets that are too levered or too indebted compared to current day interest rates. Um, You know, I heard a lot of people say to me when interest rates started rising that a lot of companies could handle that for about one year. But if it lasted more than a year, there would be a lot of firms that would have issues with with paying that higher interest expense, especially if at the same time it's combined with, you know, a slowdown in economic activity or slowdown in revenue or earnings growth. So it's an open question. I mean, I think we're already seeing a lot of creative refinancings. We're already seeing a lot of amendments to existing loan documents. So I think that's going to be a very big issue in 2024. Lisa, do you have any thoughts on defaults or um, the stress that these issuers are under? Yes, I mean, that is one of the reasons why PIC is becoming so popular and people are asking for it because high interest rates means that it's harder for companies to pay. As Paula said, inflation has made revenues and earnings high as they've made interest rates high. And so many portfolio companies that I've talked to with sponsors have said that they've been able to make these higher interest payments. But if there's any economic softness, that's going to start to really cut into um, what they can pay. And already you're starting to see sun's hints and canaries in the coal mine of corporate earning weakness. And so I think next year is going to be really the year whether we test defaults. Remember, part of um, some of the weakness in the last couple of years has been weaker covenants. And that means that that gives companies a longer runway before they, they have to deal with problems. So it might be a while before we start seeing real distress or defaults. So we've had a lot of guests on this show talk about um, the risks in in private debt. One of them raised a red flag about how fast the market has grown. You know, it went from zero to 1.5 trillion in in, about 10 years, which is bigger than the U.S. high yield bond market. There's no transparency. um, There's not much liquidity, if any. um, And companies risk falling behind on their debt payments as rates stay high for longer. Uh, the, the question earlier about new entrants, though, I mean, that, that seems to worry um, people that I talk to, you know, about the risk of a blow up um, at what they are calling private debt tourists. You know, these are maybe less sophisticated um, participants who come in and, and just try and get the yield. And maybe they're not quite as au fait with the, with the market as some of the big um, uh, incumbents. 
Do you worry about that, that, that there is sort of loose money, fast money coming in and that may result in problems, Paula? I think it's definitely a possibility. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that because private credit grew during a very strong bull market during easy money, that every private credit manager is kind of viewed the same. But as we start to see how returns shake out in 2023 and 2024, when markets are not easy, we're going to finally see, you know, who's the tier one manager versus tier two or tier three. And I think there's a lot of concern from some of the big established players that new people chasing into this asset class could have really bad results, which could make the entire industry look bad. Um, and I will say it's also just very crowded, right? So if you want to do large cap sponsor backed lending, I mean, you have to compete with Blackstone, Aries, Apollo, etc. If you want to do middle market, there's already a robust ecosystem of middle market lenders as well. One place you can try to do is a non-sponsor corporate lending, but that's really hard to originate, right? Because you don't have like one private equity firm you work with over and over. Instead, you have to have an independent relationship for every single loan. So we saw, for example, Wells Fargo partner with Centerbridge Partners earlier this year to create like a basically a partnership where Wells Fargo originates a non-corporate or sorry, a non-sponsor backed corporate loan and, you know, Centerbridge funds it. So that's one solution tapping like a bank's network. But it's just very hard to find a place that isn't already very crowded if you're new to this place. I think it's similar, very similar, but probably the number is, is smaller and it doesn't feel as crowded here. Um, the dominant players are more set. It's a smaller market. Um, and to the idea of like new entrants, to me, it's not the newness. It's because to Paula's point, the last 10 years have been pretty easy. So being in this market for six, seven years or six months, to me, what matters more is how are they able to work out a trouble loan? The fact is when the market is 1.6 trillion in size, it beggars belief, disbelief that there'll be no problems. There's going to be, everyone's going to have some portfolio, some credit that doesn't perform well. And because there's very little liquidity in this market, it's not you can't sell out of it. You can't just walk away from the problem. You have to work it out. And working out a troubled loan takes a lot of energy. And the question is, do they have the manpower and the resources and the know-how to sit through and try to extract the best recovery? And I think that's going to really show who is going to differentiate themselves in this next one or two years. And that reminds me, Lisa, you had a really good story earlier this year about how bad the recoveries have been for some leverage loans on the public debt side. I mean, that was just shocking. I think you reported somewhere 15 cents on the dollar. Yeah, because it's all about the covenants, the lack of investor protection. And so, and then the fact that you have no maintenance cup, performance cup measurements, so you can just kick the camp down the road till the very end. And then you have lender and lender violence and all these liability managements and sponsors extracting as much value. And so historically, leveraged loans should return about 70 to 80 cents, but instead they're returning like 25 cents and some even worse. And so... Is that the new normal or is it the first batch of defaults or the worst batch? And then it begs the same question because leverage loans and, and private credit loans are very similar. Is it going to be better because private credit is supposed to have better covenants? And so maybe is it more like the old days where you get 70 cents or are these smaller companies that are just going to have less leeway and less room to maneuver and going to produce worse recovery? Because I think you have to look at defaults plus recovery together. If you have like a lot of defaults, but you get all your money back, it's a bit of a pain, but 
you're still your returns are okay. You have a few defaults, but you have huge, really bad recoveries, and your returns can be really bad. So you do have to look at the two in combination. So given how quickly we've gone from a market that was only a few years ago known as shadow banking um, by a you know group of very deep-pocketed, very large funds who knew what they were doing and could probably afford to take a few losses, to now you know everyone, to you know Canadian uh, teachers are, are getting involved with their pension funds. Um, at what point does the regulator step in and say, let's um, have a closer look? Regulators are definitely taking more notice of this. Um, I want to be clear that regulators' fears right now are centered around transparency. We have not had anyone call for systemic risk questions. That is not in play. But I think the fear is they don't know what they don't know, right? Because it's so private, there's not much transparency. As this risk has left the banking system into private credit, they just don't know what's happening. And maybe it's fine, but maybe it's not. So for example, in May, the Federal Reserve had a report that essentially said it wasn't worried about private credit, but it did lack the transparency for them to assess the risks to the broader financial system. And then um, very recently, two senior Democrat senators in the U.S. wrote that the um, rapid rise of private credit, you know, it could cause unforeseen threats to the banking system. And they essentially asked regulators to figure out a way to assess dangers better and have more transparency. Um, and then I know in Europe, and Lisa, you can talk about this, the Bank of England also put this on their radar as well. Yeah, the Bank of England is definitely worried. They're, def they're watching. In the one sense, the idea is it is removed from the banking system which is the most fragile part of our financial system. There's always been banking crisis. And so moving it out, this risk to asset managers with long-term capital, it's hard to see if this, this sector sort of cratered the transmission system that would infect the rest of the financial system versus, say, leveraged loans, in which you can see a leveraged loan market cratering that would infect the high-yield bond market. That would, then that would infect IG credit and then the broader... Um, equities market, there is no transmission system that people have identified, so it may just be contained. But at the same time, lending matters. And lending has always been important to the broader health of the economy. So regulators are starting to peer in and think, okay, how do we, how do we engage with this sector? I wonder what though when when the market is called private whether they will get any transparency but we shall see. So to to wrap things up um you know let's leave everyone on a on a higher note if we can we've talked about all the risks and all the trouble but but there still seems to be this great euphoria about this market. Are we still in a golden age, Paula? I need everyone to stop saying the the words golden age of private credit. Please, please stop using that phrase. It's uh, I know everyone said it this year, but it's uh, I don't know. I mean, it's I think there's a lot of good going on in this asset class. Right. Like on from one perspective, a lot of pension funds need alternative asset classes to meet their return goals. Right. And that really does matter. But you have to think about what are these loans actually funding in the economy, you know, they're allowing for private equity leverage buyouts. Is that always a good thing? Is that a bad thing? There's there's always bigger questions there. But I think overall, so far, so good, right? Like so far, so good. But I think there's still a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered as we see the asset class grow and eventually be tested by its first full cycle. I must say, like if you were to say golden era in that sense that people is becoming a conscious known thing, definitely. Like if you said private credit a year ago, I think very few people would have understood or cared. And this year, 
it's become a very topical, something that regulators care about, investors care about, and also um, the broader audience, but perhaps not you know mom and pop, but the broader financial world cares about. So to that sense, that it is a golden age for that. But to Paula, what Paula said, is that the golden age when when you're paying 12% for your interest, perhaps not, is probably a little bit of a re reaction to the hiked interest rate and the fact that the broadly syndicated market and high yield bond markets are a little frozen and not completely healthy. It is partly a reaction to a, a sort of a broken public market. And I just wanted to add one thing, which is like access to capital really matters, right? Like this is what makes the world go around. This is what keeps companies functioning. And, you know, this, the sense that I have, there's not really data, but my sense is that, well, even though private credit has eaten away some at the high yield bond and leveraged loan market, the total pie has gotten bigger, right? So if you're just a company or you're a private equity firm that needs to use debt funding, like you have more options, you have more capital as well. So, you know, in terms of access to capital, there appears to be more, even though that has come at the expense of the public markets. Great stuff, Lisa Lee and Paula Seligson. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. Please come back on the show soon and all the best for 2024. I hope it's a good one. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you. Read all of Lisa and Paula's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So as I mentioned earlier, we're delighted to welcome back on the Credit Edge, Rena Kwok from Bloomberg Intelligence in Singapore. How are you, Rena? I'm good. How about you, James? Very good. Thank you. You're based in Singapore, but you cover banks across Asia. So let's start with the big picture. China is slowing down, as is the rest of the world. How does that affect the banks in your region? If I would just sum it up uh, for the banks that are covered, ASEAN banks, um, I would use one word, which is resilience. Now, if we look into the ASEAN banks, the major ASEAN banks could face a modest asset quality worsening next year amid a more challenging environment. And we do expect higher levels of credit costs to materialize for unsecured retail loans, as well as loans to SMEs likely to be at most risk. But that being said, um, the impact of defaults on the major lenders' balance sheet would be manageable as they are largely offset by solid provisions, as well as the tighter risk control that the lenders have built over the years. So a story really of resilience, and we have talked about that in the past on this show, the banks are in good shape. But within Southeast Asia, uh, the region you cover, where do you think we'll see some outperformance? What, what will do better? Sure. I think uh, as we look within the Southeast Asia region, firstly, Indonesian and Thai banks could see a very gradual uptake in non-performing loans after the expiry of the forbearance measures uh, at the end of this year, premised on a more orderly resolution of the restructured loans. As we look into the laggards, I would say Thai banks uh, could continue to resort to active uh, MPL management to bolster their balance sheets and their credit costs could actually remain elevated and underperform other Southeast Asian banking sectors due to a more sluggish economic recovery. We do expect their average banking sector credit costs to Thailand to come in the range of 1.3 to 1.5% next year. Now, where are the key risks that we see for Thai banks? I would say the structural weakness in SME, SME loans continue to be a key risk for Thai banks, uh, while the mortgages risk could be contained if employment conditions hold up despite the elevated household debt. 
In terms of bright spots, uh, definitely Singapore Bank's asset quality could continue to remain peer-leading with a very marginal increase in the non-performing loans next year. And the credit costs could be at normalized levels since they have already set ample provisions since the pandemic. So when we look at dollar bonds and the performance there, the outlook for next year, what do you what do you make of that? What are, what's going to do well? What's going to do badly? Sure. I think, you know, for the major ASEAN banks, dollar bonds performance, they could still be a bit resilient next year. And why so? A couple of reasons right there. Uh, most of the major lenders in this region, their risk buffers are really strong enough to cushion potentially modest spread widening as we see um, in the macroeconomic hit ones. Now, another positive is that the manageable refinancing needs for most of the lenders in this region are positive for their bond technicals. So it is certainly a sector that a lot of people like, um, you know, in the US and, and globally, they like financials um, for next year. Um, there's particularly been interest in the 81 bonds this year after Credit Suisse collapsed in March. That's additional tier one bonds, the riskiest type of bank debt for those who are new to this. But um, that market did recover very quickly um, from the losses related to the, the banking crisis earlier. Do we expect supply risks for ASEAN banks, um, 81s into 2024? Yeah, I think you're, you rightly pointed out, James, you have seen that globally, uh, you know, the global bank's AT1s have recovered. And recently, we have seen really strong demand for the UBS AT1 as well. Now, however, as we take a closer look at where I am in Southeast Asia, um, AT1 issuances by the major ASEAN banks look set to be low next year, uh, with possibly actually negative net supply due to low refinancing needs, given the ample capital reserves that we pointed out earlier as well as muted growth uh, in risk-weighted assets given a weaker loan potential amid the interest rate uncertainties as well as the macro headwinds. So less supply, more demand, does that just mean higher price? I would say, um, you know, for the major ASEAN banks, uh, they do not rely heavily on AT1 just to maintain their capital adequacy. Their earnings accrual are more than able to actually uh, compensate for the risk-rated assets consumption. So they are unlikely to come to the market uh, unless it's opportunistic. And that being said, um, for major ASEAN banks, they could still access cheaper onshore funding and has less reliance on offshore funding if they have to. So another thing we'd be looking at in the context of 81s is the non-call risk. Um, that is when, I guess, investors are kind of pricing these things to call and then the bank doesn't call them for whatever reason. I mean, it's obviously an option of the issuer. It doesn't, it's not an obligation. They don't have to do it. But when, when they don't do it, investors sometimes are surprised. What is the risk, risk of non-call in the ASEAN uh, 81s? Sure, James. I think, you know, in terms of non-core risk, definitely this is one of the key risks to watch amid the elevated interest rates in the near term. Now, as we look into Southeast Asia, we only have one dollar eighty-one uh, that's callable within Southeast Asia in 2024. And that is actually from TMB Bank, a Thai bank, a pretty major bank in Thailand. And uh, we actually see a low non-core risk for TMB dollar eighty-one um next year, uh, given that, you know, the lender has ample capital reserves with their core capital ratios at least 8% above their regulatory minimum hurdles. And even so, um, the lender has uh, actually ample capital reserves, even if they choose not to refinance its AT1s. Okay, great. So um, the other thing that we are looking at um, here is the Basel III reforms, effective 2024. Uh, people are calling it the end game. Um, how does that impact capital buffers and debt issuance um, in Singapore? 
Sure. So if I may just take a step back and give a bit more background about this Basel uh, regulations. Now, within Southeast Asia, Singapore, or rather Singapore banks, are actually at the forefront of uh, what we call the Basel rules adoption. Now, as the fully loaded Basel rules, um, you know, as the final Basel rules will kick in effective July next year, uh, we believe it's actually on a gradual basis, starting from 2024 on the face over the fires to 2029. And we actually see the capital impact of the fully loaded final Basel III rules on Singapore banks to be manageable. And this is thanks to their diversified businesses as well as the modest trading books at about 4 to 10% of the total risk-weighted assets as of June 2023. Now, we believe that Singapore banks could still stay well capitalized without their extra capital raises to meet the new rules and the dividend policies are unlikely to be impacted as well. One thing I'm interested in um, that is is a big theme for this podcast. Um, I know we haven't sort of talked about this, you and I, but um, private credit. Um, it's a massive opportunity for the um, global lenders. They're all trying to get into it, even though it just seems like old school lending to me. Um, to what extent is there private credit going on um, amongst the banks that you cover? Sure. I think within Southeast Asia, uh, private credit, well, is definitely a big topic. Um, you know, some of the global banks have really, um, you know, started like um, units just for this space. I would say within Southeast Asia, um, this popularity of private credit, credit for my space is still more muted. Uh, I would still say it's still at a very uh, nascent stage. If you see for the loan growth that we have within Southeast Asia, um, most of the traditional banks are still doing the lending to the borrowers. You can, in as of I would say the nine months uh, 2023 figures, across Southeast Asia, loan growth has been robust in uh, Indonesia. Uh, fairly healthy in Philippines as well as even though in Singapore loan growth is quite muted because of the elevated interest rates but definitely I think uh, private credit is one of the um, you know key space to watch for the banking going forward as well but less so for Southeast Asia at this point in time. So just to wrap things up uh, Rena, um, if you look at 2024 across all of your co coverage areas where do you think the best relative value is from the point of view of a, a foreign investor? Sure. I think at um, you know as we look into the capital structure of the major ASEAN banks, meaning um, the additional tier one bonds that you mentioned, uh, the tier two bonds as well as the seniors. Now among the dollar um, tier twos, uh, we believe that. Um, Bangkok Bank dollar tier twos could offer uh, relative value and might actually tighten the emerging ASEAN banks uh, peer curve next year due to um, relative outperformance that is actually given that the bank is actually likely to face the list risk as well as the peer leading risk buffers amid a more nascent economic recovery in Thailand. Now, let me just share with you why we think actually uh, Bangkok Bank asset quality could actually remain peer leading among the peers next year. Couple reasons, right? As firstly, it has a safer loan mix as compared to its peers. Now, about 44% of Bangkok Bank's total loans are to large corporates, which are actually safer, better able to withstand any macroeconomic hitments um, if the tourism recovery is not as forthcoming than expected. Now, secondly, it has a lower share of forbearance loans as compared to the banking sector average. Uh, so that helps to actually mitigate, I would say, any cliff effect that we might see once the forbearance measure end next, uh, this end of this year. And lastly, actually, Bangkok Bank has the highest loan loss 
risk buffers about 283% in third quarter. And this is well above the banking sector average, of, you know, as well as the peer average. So we do like uh, Bank of Bank's uh, credit profile. And just to close on the risks, um, Rena, what, what worries you about the outlook there? What's the one big thing to worry about for next year? I would say uh, one of the key risks that we are looking at is uh, the elevated interest rates. I think the market is now sitting on the fence whether will interest rates uh, cut happen, uh, be in the first half or second half. But assuming if interest rates remain elevated uh, higher for longer, I think that might actually put more pressure on the weaker borrowers, uh, such as what we mentioned earlier on uh, unsecured retail loans, uh, loans to uh, the small and medium enterprises, what we call SME. So I think that is something to watch. But at least what's more comforting, if you look into the banks in this region, they have ample uh, risk buffers to cushion the credit losses across their earnings, capital reserves, as well as provisions. So that could actually mitigate impact on the balance sheets. And you'll, of course, be writing about that in great detail. Definitely. So stay tuned. <laughs> we will. Great stuff. Rena Kwok at Bloomberg Intelligence in Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, James. Read all of Rena's excellent analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal or do reach out to her directly for more information. And thanks again to Paula Seligson and Lisa Lee. Read all of Lisa and Paula's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Please give us a review, tell your friends or email me directly at jcrumby8 at Bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number eight at bloomberg.net. We do want to hear from you. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.